of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Today we're looking at this sermon entitled, Experiencing True Worship. Matthew, I'm sorry, did I say Luke? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's Matthew, I'm so sorry. Matthew 1, or 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, in the Christmas season, when, Lord, as we looked at last week, when just the busyness and the dysfunction of it all comes uh, to the forefront of our minds, Lord, we pray that we would uh, be reminded why... Christmas really matters and why Jesus is is so important to, Lord, not only just this season, but to the rest of our lives. So, Father, now as we come to uh, these examples of worshipers that we see in the wise men and the magi, Lord, we just pray that we would exemplify that in our lives, that, Lord, as we have talked about many times this year in the theme of worship, uh, Father, um, we would experience true worship this Christmas season. Lord, we know that we are in need of your help for that, so we ask for your help in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Here's what I love about this passage. Not only did these educated, influential, and wealthy individuals from the East go on a search for Jesus, here's the cool thing. They found him. Uh, The result of that was true worship. And that's the title of this morning's message. If you want to experience Christmas God's way, think of experiencing Christmas in 2019. It is experiencing true worship of King Jesus. So I hope you have your outline this morning, although it's it's, uh, got some difficulty. It's my fault and some miscommunication there. But uh, I want you to look at it. In, In application points, you'll see there's only really two application points. 
Uh, and the rest of those points that are entitled Worship Involves are the four uh, key points that we have this morning. So you have number one, Worship Involves. You have uh, the questions about the wise men, application points that are two. And then where it says three, four, and five, scratch that out and put two, three, and four. Number those uh, correctly. That's my fault. But in t- order to understand this passage truly, we need to go back in history and explore some things from the Old Testament. But really, my hope in all of this is when it's all said and done, At the end of the day, you're going to say, wow, there are some great truths here we can learn together so we can grow and share with others. The blessing of this is that each one of us can experience true worship this Christmas. We can experience it by following the example of the Magi. So like I've said, I've limited our sermon to four key examples that just jump out of the passage. And so let's dive right in. Example number one. Worship involves, and the key word here, intentionally seeking Jesus. Worship involves intentionally seeking Jesus. Let's look together at the first two verses of our passage again. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw, and here's the key word, his star in the east and have come to worship him. I I want to take a few moments here and, and really unpack three things that you see there in your bulletin. Who are these wise men? Where did they come from? And why did they pursue Jesus? Uh, so first, who are they? Their identity. The Greek word that's translated magi is magos. And if you go back in the ancient literature, it's, it's very important. The earliest use of the term magos in ancient literature characterized a member of or a cast of priest wise men among the Medes and the Persians in Babylon and who chief expertise in education was learning was, was astronomy, astrology, and enchantments. This will make sense in a little bit. You may be aware that the prophet Daniel, while exiled in Babylon, had a significant and influential role given to him by King Nebuchadnezzar. Let me draw your attention to Daniel chapter 5, verse 11. I want you to see this. It should be on the screen here. Listen to these words. It says, The king, being Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him, Daniel, the chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. So King Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel, this man of God, chief over this group of people. So connect the dots with me here. In other words, the prophet Daniel had complete oversight over the ancient world and these people called the Magi. It's the same guys. Now, of course, Daniel goes back some centuries, and here we are in the first century coming to visit Jesus, but that was one of Daniel's roles. Uh, that he had. So, so like Daniel, these individuals were schooled in the philosophy of the ancient world. In Persia, they acquired what I believe to be equal to a, a level of a, of a master's or a doctoral level of education. They were educated, therefore most translations refer to them as wise men. Now, now where do they come from? What's their location? Where do these wise men come from? Twice in this passage, Matthew records that these are learned men that came from where? From the east. Most scholars agree that they came from the kingdoms of Babylon or Persia. What we would call today Iraq or Iran. Their their route was actually very similar to Nehemiah. 
who traveled from Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, and it would have taken a caravan approximately four to five months, and they're traveling church about 2,000 miles round trip. It's about 700 miles from here to Memphis, and we just did that in an SUV with two children, and I can tell you that that's not a whole lot of fun, right? If you ask me to describe what a good time is, it's not 10 to 11 to 12 to 13 hours in a car with with two kids who don't want to be in that car. And yet, here we have these guys uh, taking this giant caravan in a day where there was no highways, there was no interstates, there's there was only, uh, there's no I-95, there was only desert, right? Uh, and so what we have here is essentially a, a trip like traveling from Callahan to New York City and back. That, that's what we have. Uh, and they didn't have the comforts of SUVs and GPSs. No, this trip was, was dangerous. It was long and it was arduous. Yet, they made it. Undoubtedly, by the way, they rode by camelback. A good friend of mine lived in Israel for a couple of years and he had the distinct pleasure of riding on a camel's back. And if you can imagine, it's not very comfortable. Anybody in here ever ridden on a camel, by the way? Yeah. Uh, imagine that your testimony would be it's not very comfortable. Well, think about it. 2,000 miles, round trip on camelback. We're talking somewhere between 8 to 10 months. All because they're following what? A, a star. But notice what the text says. His star. I, I would contend this morning that these guys were all in. Would you agree? But here's the kicker, the most important part. Why? What was their motivation? Now, please stick with me and, and follow along because I, I hope there's an aha moment in here somewhere. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, that the Magi saw his star in the east. It's a very important statement in this text. So, so we get a sense that their ability to find the Messiah was an understanding of the prophetic truth of God's word. So track with me. Right? We, we know for certain that during the Babylonian and Persian captivity, individuals like Daniel, Esther, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezra, and Nehemiah had enormous influence on that pagan world. Right? In fact, Esther 8 verse 17, listen to what it says. This is the 27 provinces of Babylon, the greatest empire in the world at that time. It says, in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. And so here's my conclusion I really truly believe this. The book of Esther suggests that, that these converts to Judaism established the Jewish faith as their own and fast forward, it's still living many generations later. So as a result, they could have been familiar with the scriptures which pointed them to his star, the star of the king. Connecting the dots, we have in Numbers 24, 17, this prophecy from the writings of Moses, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. This prophecy is set in Hebrew parallelism and describes a star coming from the seed of Jacob and a scepter, meaning a king who would ascend from Israel. Now, really, I want you to understand this. The gospel of Jesus Christ saturates the Old Testament everywhere. 
The Old Testament is about Jesus. There was an anticipation for the Messiah. And you can't help it. But when you read Psalm 22, when you read the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, they were forecasting a Messiah that would come. He was called the Messiah, the suffering servant. So if you knew the Old Testament prophecies, you know a Messiah was coming. And you know that there was coming a day when Messiah, son of David, would come and reign on the throne of David. And I get a sense here that these men understood those prophecies. You may recall in the New Testament, after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he had at least 10 appearances to people. He appeared to individuals, he uh, appeared to a small group of people, and he appeared to large masses. But one of the most popular is the encounter he had with some individuals who were walking on the road to Emmaus. I'll show you what happens in Luke 24, 44 through 45. So these men who were, were wondering what took place in Jerusalem, they were discouraged, they were processing, they were hurting, and look what Jesus does. Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is if you want to know the gospel, you can go back to the law of Moses. You can go back to the Psalms. You can go back to the prophets. And I believe with all my heart, these learned men, these magas, these wise men, this is exactly what they were doing. They had the same thing happen to them, that God had opened their mind to understand the scriptures, and they saw this Messiah so worthy that they distanced themselves 2,000 miles to go see him. They, they, they traveled that long way. They understood the prophetic scriptures, so they traveled a great distance at great cost with great risk to do what? To find the Messiah, the King, baby Jesus. So a few application points here that I think we just need to think about. Number one, be a person of influence. Why do I say that? Be a person of influence. I, I think really when you look at, at their story, you have to conclude that at some point in the pagan ancient world, there were people like Shadrach, like Meshach, like Abednego, people like Ezra and Nehemiah, people like Daniel and Esther, influencing their culture for the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here are these men knowing the scriptures, making a great trip at a great cost with great risk to find baby Jesus. Be a person of influence like that so that generations to come will know that they are to look to the scriptures and find Christ. Secondly, is it too much of a cliche to, to say that wise men and women still seek God? Wise men and women still seek God. I hope that's not too cliche. There's a whole travel log in scripture that covers that. Uh, let me show you. Deuteronomy 4, 29. God encourages the nation of Israel and he says this, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. King David wrote in Psalm 105, 3 and 4, let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face. How long? Continually. 
The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. James 4, 8, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Friends, this is a, this is a privilege. What a privilege we have to seek God. Man, one of the greatest joys of my life is having the privilege of discipling many men in our church or have, having discipling men in the past. There's nothing like the beauty of, of coming together, memorizing scripture together, learning from the scripture together, and the beauty is being able to see the heart behind this church. We are seeking God together. We are growing together. We are holding each other accountable. Let me just encourage you, by the way, if you had not had anyone personally disciple you or you are engaged in a Sunday school class where discipleship is happening within our body, friends, you are robbing yourself of a time where we can seek God together. If you seek him, you will find him. But it's hard for me to believe that people are simultaneously seeking God while also not really making any real effort to engage in discipleship. So, so let me just ask you, whether it's Sunday school or personally with a more mature or brother or sister, what, where are you at on the stage or level of discipleship? Have you ever been personally discipled by a brother or sister in Christ? Are you engaging in personal discipleship in a small group setting in Sunday school each week? Friends, this is vitally important. If we're to be a church that seeks God together, we need this. See, there's a movement in Christendom today that says, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. It's prolific right now. A lot of people are saying, yeah, Jesus is fine, yeah, but I'm just not into the church. So they're distancing themselves from what happens here in corporate worship. I'd like to challenge that because I think part of seeking God is seeking God corporately. Seeking him here in corporate worship, it, it happened in Israel they were known as the ecclesia, the assembly. They ascended up to Jerusalem. They did it in celebration. And when we come together, we fulfill what Hebrews says about not forsaking the assembling together of the saints, which is the habit of some. So our goal, yes, is, is to come and we seek the Lord individually and we seek the Lord uh, together with our, with our families, but we seek the Lord corporately together. So friends, the charge here is keep prioritizing Worship. Is worship a priority in your life? I pray that it is. Example number one, worship involves intentionally seeking Jesus. Example number two, worship involves a disposition of joy and humility. Joy and humility. Look at what happens in verse 10 in the first part of verse 11 in our text. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know if you can put the word rejoiced in more descriptive detail than that, right? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. I trust this scene of worship captures your imagination like it does mine. Just think about this. I don't know about you, but every time I travel a long distance somewhere, I'm expecting a warm reception. Can I just be honest with you? Because I'm the one who's done the traveling, right? Be it, you know it too, don't lie, all right? You're expecting a warm reception because you put in the effort 
to travel. And that, what did these wise men receive? A barn with smelly animals and a newborn baby, a two-year-old probably at this time baby, a small house in, in Bethlehem, nothing more than a barn, I guarantee it. And what do we find them do? Falling down to their feet and worshiping Jesus, who's likely two years old at this time, somewhere around there. Could you just imagine the scene, <laughs> right? People traveling this far, this many months, and the first thing they do is they enter this, this probably likely tiny little house. They fall to their feet and worship the toddler. It's, it's remarkable to think about. They traveled great distances, incurred enormous expense and risk to follow what is called his star. Yet when they arrive, what happens? They see the child. And it's not, they don't do this out of duty or responsibility. It was their tremendous joy that led them to bow down and worship him. They were overwhelmed with joy. They bowed down with humble adoration and they worshiped King Jesus. See, true biblical worship then should be an experience of both joy and humility. The psalmist said in Psalm 43, 4, Then I will go to the altar to God, my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. We talked about this on Wednesday night. If you were here, can I ask you this morning, is, is God your greatest joy the psalmist says, this is corporate worship. I'm coming to the house of my God. I have a heart of anticipation to meet him, to experience his presence, to experience his glory. He is my greatest joy. Is he your greatest joy today? That's the heart of Christmas. Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2. Joyfully shout to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. This is a privilege we have even tonight. To come before him in joyful singing, worshiping God in spirit and truth. Let me tell you a story about a young man I, I met when I was on a mission trip in Vietnam. I went, I think it was 2012, I believe. This young man, his name was Juan. Juan was a Christian. Juan was led into the ministry. Juan led us around a college ministry where we were to engage with young Vietnamese students who would be interested in just seeing Americans with the hope that in seeing Americans, they would want to bring up conversation and they would engage us so that we could engage them with the gospel and the purpose that we were here. Well, if you know anything about uh, Vietnam, Vietnam's a communist country and Christianity is illegal there. And I remember sharing, uh, Juan sharing with us his story about what's going on in his life. He had recently been evicted for the third or fourth time from his apartment because his father-in-law worked for the Vietnamese government. It's illegal to hold Christian church services there, but Juan being a, a follower of Jesus and led into the gospel ministry, every time he'd go into a new apartment, he could not help it. He would begin witnessing and winning souls wherever he lived. And he would uh, move in, he would share the gospel with his neighbors, and he'd start a Bible study or church service in the lobby of that apartment complex or in an apartment building somewhere. And yet every time his father-in-law would find out where they lived, he would find Juan and his wife, threaten the landlord of that place with his governmental power and get them evicted. And so I just began to think, this guy had a choice. 
He could stay in his home and just have a personal one-on-one time with Jesus and consider that church. Or he could meet corporately with believers and get evicted at his home. And this happened three or four times, yet each time the gospel compelled him in such a way that he could not resist worshiping the Lord corporately. It's not like, by the way, he could just go to some other local church. They weren't allowed. And I remember seeing him and being so inspired by him. Why? Because he prioritized God. He did everything he could to make worshiping God in spirit and in truth a priority, even at great cost. I think this is at the heart of this passage. We come with a heart of worship. We come joyfully and humbly worshiping our king. So let me ask you, is is God your, your exceeding joy? And if he is, then I only can conclude that That what we do here and worshiping him corporately is such a priority to you because it's the thing that gives you joy. And it it blows my mind because I see this in just the, the life of Christians everywhere is that we always need and feel like we need to take a break from church to go do something we enjoy. There's a a huge problem with that. Friends, if you don't enjoy seeing Christ and seeking Christ, that's a heart issue. And my prayer is that you would would see him portrayed and displayed as glorious because he is. And it would invoke in you being a sinner who's hopefully been saved by this Jesus to have such a great and exceeding joy that you burst in the doors every chance you get to praise him. With joy in your hearts. I pray that this would mirror us, that we too would worship and that worship would involve joy and humility. I can't, I can't tell you, listen, our students are going to visit Shuddens today and I can't tell you every time I go to Shudden ministry, uh, they're disheartened and discouraged because they so long to be together with the church body. And it's such a convicting and an encouraging thing for me because it's how it ought to be with us. I can't just foster that. I can't... Make sermons more entertaining so you can see that. All I can do is present to you Jesus and trust that by his spirit's work you'll see him as glorious and he'll produce gospel joy leading to praise. I pray that you would see him in such a way, friends. Now, example number three. Worship involves giving our best. Worship involves giving our best. You know where this is going, right? The end of verse 11. Look at the rest of verse 11. It says, Then, opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the Greek word for treasures here is very important. It's actually thesaurus. It literally means the treasure box. And I found this interesting. It could mean the treasure caskets. And so for me, the the example of worship is crystal clear. These men traveling great distances came prepared with a treasure chest filled with gifts to honor and worship King Jesus. In other words, their giving wasn't an afterthought, folks. They had treasures 
Of course, we're familiar with these treasures. Let's take a look at them. Consider the three things they generously presented. First, they brought gold. Now, in the ancient world, gold was very significant because it was a gift that was always given to kings. Gold represents royalty. Could it be that these men are recognizing Jesus as king? I think so. Second, they gave frankincense. Capture this uh, frankincense is a very rare fragrance. It's made from the bark of a tree found in Arabia. Frankincense was what was burned as incense in the temple to worship God. And in bringing frankincense, those wise men were saying, Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. Gold represents God, he's king. Frankincense represents uh, he's worthy of worship as God. And then finally, and this is real interesting, they brought myrrh. Anybody know what myrrh is in the ancient world? It's a, it's a strange substance, folks. Myrrh is an incredibly odd gift to give an infant, to give a two-year-old. Myrrh was the spice used in the ancient world to embalm dead bodies. Why in the world would you give a death spice to a baby? Could it be that they gave this gift of myrrh that even in his birth, the death of Jesus was forecasted because he is our savior, he is the Messiah? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, we worship you as the son of God, as the king of all the earth, and we see in your birth the salvation of the world. Thank God for that. Now, I want to mention one side note here. I, I tend not to do this sometimes, uh, but sometimes I get carried away with presuming particular things in Scripture, just wondering how things happened. Uh, and so let me start by saying this, ultimately, this isn't exposition as much as it is presumption, even though the principle is found in different parts of Scripture. But have you ever questioned whether or not the wise men funded the Holy Family's displacement in becoming refugees in Egypt? Because right after this, in the next section, in fact, verse 12 or uh, verse 13, uh, Joseph is warmed in a dream not to return uh, to Jerusalem. And so he's, he's got to move to Egypt and become a refugee there. He had to flee because the barbaric King Herod was going to kill the male-born sons, two years and older. So they flee to Egypt. And we anticipate up to living for about two years there as refugees. We know this from the rest of the Gospels that Joseph and Mary were relatively poor. Why? Because the offering they gave in the temple was either a dove or a pigeon. The offering of the dove or a pigeon is the offering of a poor family. So let's just think about this. The Holy Family doesn't have any resources. They left for Bethlehem. Yes, we know Joseph was a carpenter, but it's not like it is today where there's not very many uh, trades available. There's he probably was already barging in on some business in, in Bethlehem already. And so we know that they don't have very many resources. They've left Nazareth for Bethlehem, Bethlehem for Egypt. They're living as refugees for up to two years. Now, I don't know how it happened exactly. I'm not sure. But wouldn't it be like God to use these three or how many wise men there were to fund the displacement of the Holy Family to Egypt? I, I don't know. But here's what I do know about God. I know he cares. I know he loves us. I know there's a lot of hurt and pain in the world and he sees. 
And I know it wouldn't be unlike God to proactively provide the resources for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus to live in pagan Egypt away from family and friends, away from work, and away from resources. I I do know that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. And I believe Mary and Joseph experienced that. And I thank God for that. Because this is the kind of God we worship and serve. There's an encouragement here. Listen, I, I say that it wouldn't be unlike God to use these wise individuals who came to worship Jesus to, ki- to fund kingdom work. And I say that because God has always used the resources of his people to fund kingdom work. Because it's actually all his anyways. Your resources are the resources that he has given you. And every time we live generously with our time, talents, treasures, and touch, we fund the kingdom and we see the kingdom of God come. So I, I'm presuming that, I get it. But it's still a, a biblical principle that God always uses our resource to fund kingdom work. Now finally, our last example here, worship involves obedience and faith. Worship involves obedience and faith. That should be a Kind of a duh point, right? We know this to be the case. How can one worship without faith? And how does one show faith without obedience? Well, let's look at verse 12 here together. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. By another way. Just so you know, church, again, there there weren't a lot of highways in the ancient world Another way was risky, risky business. For them to obey God and not obey man, it could have cost them everything, including their lives. We already know from the rest of the New Testament that Herod was barbaric. He killed off infants and babies in in Bethlehem two years and younger. Look at the rest of the history about Herod. He kills off family members, kids, any rivals in his kingdom. He was a slaughterer. He was paranoid. So as they went back another route, as they defied Herod and obeyed God, they showed obedience and faith. Church family, we know this, right? Obedience can be risky. One writer actually defined the Christian life as a long obedience in the right direction. It is long obedience sometimes. It is one step after another. But boy, they launched their journey of worship really well here as they went home. Jesus said, it's clear, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So let me just ask you, Christmas 2019, experiencing true worship, and it it involves seeking Jesus, which led to joy and humility, which resulted in generosity, and then also obedience and faith. Does this mark your experience of worship? Are, Are these elements here? I pray that they are. Are you seeking the Lord? You finding joy in the Lord? Is it leading you to not puffed up pride and knowledge, but leading you to humility on consistent bowing down and worshiping King Jesus? Are you giving generously to the Lord out of your treasures? Are you living a life of obedience and faith? Church family, I pray that as we look at this example of worship, that it, it marks who we are today as Christians. I I believe this. I believe God is faithful. And I believe he is doing great things. 
I believe he is worthy of every ounce of our worship. So even as we conclude this, this theme, this year of worship, I pray that you and I can stand together and seek the Lord together. And that these elements of worship would be so present and prevalent in our gatherings, in our church services, that it would be so contagious to the world around us. That people will see not just not just preaching or music at Grey Gables, but they would see the love, the joy, the camaraderie, the fellowship we have as people, as believers. That they would look at us and say, that's someone who seeks the Lord consistently with other people, and they would be encouraged by that. I believe God's going to use that to build his kingdom, and I pray that we'd all be involved with that. Why don't you stand as we pray together?